Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was flying back from Kansas, which is a great place to be flying back from, by the way. Uh, I was flying back from Kansas, and, and I had a nice flight time schedule that was for 1.30 in the afternoon. I was going to be home just at a nice, at a nice early time. Uh, however, as we were sitting there in the waiting area, as I'm sure you have experienced, uh, the time started moving back. And the flight that was supposed to leave at 1.30 was now leaving it at 2 o'clock. And then the flight that was supposed to be leaving at 2 o'clock was now leaving at 2.22. And then and back and back and back it started to go. And a number of people were getting concerned because we had connecting flights. And, and all of this was going on. And, and, and so the big question that, that started running through the group as we're sitting there waiting, they never moved it far enough to where you could leave. It was always just 20 more minutes, 20 more minutes, 20 more. So you're stuck there. Uh, the question that started running through the group as we're sitting there is why? Why is this happening? Uh, of course, thinking that why would make us feel better. We need to know what's going on. And finally, after about two hours of delays, they came on and told us that there was a problem with the instrument panel in the plane. And all of a sudden, the why that we all thought would make us feel better did not make us feel better at all because we were still getting on that plane and there was an instrument panel problem. So the why didn't really help. Um, but we do know that that's not always and even not usually the case with wise. Usually, wise do help. And as we've been studying John's gospel, we've seen that John is actually providing us a very helpful why when it comes to understanding our need for looking to Jesus. Uh, the flow of the narrative so far, like just what Heidi read for us this morning, has included the story of Nicodemus and Jesus interacting around the reality of our need for new birth. We must be born again if we're going to see the kingdom of God. We need to be renewed in our hearts by the Spirit of God if we're going to be believing in Jesus. And so uh, Jesus has been working through this reality with Nicodemus. Nicodemus has been struggling to understand it. And Jesus has brought things to a, a climactic point in their conversation, not in saying, why don't you get it yet? But he brings it to the climactic point of saying the thing you need to be most concerned about Nicodemus is looking to me because as you look to me, you find life. And that's what we have in that Old Testament picture he gives there from Numbers chapter 21 uh, around this serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. As in verses 14 and 15 of our chapter, we remember that story that we've referenced now a number of times where uh, the Israelites are wandering in the desert. They've been grumbling against Moses and God again and as part of God's judgment upon them for their continued grumbling, he sends serpents into the camp. And the way to be rescued from that judgment is to look at this bronze serpent on a pole that Moses uh, has been instructed to lift up. And as people look to the pole, they're relieved from the judgment of the serpents. Jesus uses that, uh, what seems like a very obscure Old Testament story to us, Jesus uses that with a very learned Old Testament scholar, at least by his own admission, Nicodemus, he takes that picture and says, this is ultimately pointing to me. So as we're thinking about all this new birth stuff, these things that are hard to understand, these categories, Nicodemus, that you need to have adjusted, the biggest thing we need to take from all of this, the biggest thing we need to take from all of this is we're called to look to Jesus. As we look to Jesus, we find the relief and the life that's there for, for, the, for the one who will believe. And so we get to that point, which, which then leaves us with this very natural question, which would be, why Jesus? Why do we look to Jesus? Because we live in a world full of options that promise life, like we mentioned last time. Why, why would we look to Jesus? What's unique about the person of Jesus that draws us out in, a, in an exclusive trust in Him? 
So if I'm a first century reader of John's gospel, why would I look to Jesus instead of the many gods that were worshipped in the Roman uh, world during that time? There's many options for deity worship and hope. Why would I look to Jesus? Uh, In our time, things might be a little bit different, but we still have many options around us, whether they be social or political or or relational or emotional. Uh, Many things that promise life are all around us. Why would we look to Jesus? And this may very well be a question that that you have had in the past. This may be a question that you even have presently. Uh, We're in a world full of options. Why, Why would I put my trust exclusively in Jesus for true life? And in John 3, 16 to 21, John is really giving us his his narrator answer to that question. Why do we look to Jesus for life instead of trying to find that relief, trying to find that rest, trying to find that hope that we know we need? Why are we looking to Jesus for that instead of other places? And and part of John's answer to that why question came last week in verse 16, uh, where he tells us that we look to Jesus because God loved the world in this way. This is how God has loved the world. He sent His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So reason number one we look to Jesus is that Jesus is the definitive expression of God's life-giving love for the world. That's why we look to Jesus. That's verse 16. Now this week what we're going to do is we're going to spend time in verses 17 to 21 where we have another reason why we look to Jesus Uh, It's a reason that's not entirely disconnected from what we looked at last time in verse 16, but it is a reason that brings further clarification as we're called to trust in Christ. So so in verse 16, we look to Jesus because he's the definitive expression of God's life-giving love for the world. That's verse 16. Now in verse 17, we look to Jesus because Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. So Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to save. Uh, Now, we got some of this truth last time in verse 16. It's obviously there where John's told us that God loved the world so that as we trust in him, instead of perishing, we have eternal life. So so the salvation from perishing uh, truth has already been brought up. But now here, things are worked out a little bit further in terms of unpacking the why for for trusting in Christ. We, We look to Jesus, we believe in him because he didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. And it's a truth that we need to be renewed in in our hearts as we follow Jesus again and again. And it's a truth that we need to consider well if we're contemplating what this following Jesus is really all about. Uh, The fact that Jesus didn't come to condemn, but he came to save. And so we'll we'll look at this passage, verses 17 to 21, under three sections. In fact, I'll give those sections to you if that's helpful. Uh, So in verse 17, we'll look at that verse under the heading, No Condemnation. Verse 18... We'll look at that under the heading present division. And then 19 to 21, we have further explanation. Um, It just so happened that everything ended in a shun, which gives us great hope. So we'll start in verse 17. No condemnation. In fact, let me just read verse 17 again. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 17. So, so John is aiming here to make this one thing really, really clear. And that is, first of all, God did not send his son Jesus into the world uh, in his first coming to be this agent of judgment sentencing. Right? 
Jesus didn't come as a minister of, of guilt. Jesus didn't come as a minister of shame. Jesus didn't come as a minister of hopelessness. Uh, God sent Jesus into the world to be a rescuer. So not to condemn us, but to save us from condemnation. Uh, ultimately, we know he did that by, by giving his life on the cross. Um, if you've ever had occasion to be in front of people, uh, maybe it's providing a training session at work, or maybe it's in a classroom setting, whatever the case may be, when you're up in front of people, sometimes you can tell that uh, while the group has been tracking with you up to that point, all of a sudden things have changed and the group stops tracking with you. Um, and sometimes it's just because what you're saying is boring, or, or maybe you've been talking too long. Of course, that never happens to preachers. Um, but, but sometimes you get a sense that they've stopped tracking with you because they have a question that you're just not addressing. Uh, I have memories of teaching sixth grade flashbacks is probably a better word for it. Flashbacks of teaching sixth grade math. I had to teach one math section when I was a teacher. And then things were going along in a great direction in the lesson until one particular point. And, and, you, and you find yourself looking out at all the little darlings. And you know that, that they're just not with you anymore at all. You've totally lost them. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they think you're not making sense. Uh, but as you look out to the listeners, you can, you can just feel this distance start to grow. And you, and you realize whatever's happening, there's just this disconnect that has to be addressed if I'm going to keep making instructional progress. Right? You've, you've got to talk about whatever's going on here. And, and it seems to be that kind of reality that John is being sensitive to here as he thinks of his reader. That John's made it really clear that Jesus is God's life-giving love gift to the world. But John is aware that this truth about Jesus might find people in a position of being resistant of, of, of being not receptive to it and that lack of receptivity that needs to be addressed as John perceives it that element exists around this notion of condemnation it's, it's like John can look out at his audience audience's faces and then he can tell that in instead of thinking that Jesus is God's loving gift to the world instead at least some of John's audience is stuck thinking that Jesus has really just come to condemn the world so, so some, are, some are hearing about Jesus, and they're thinking to themselves, Jesus is really just there to dis, disapprove of me. Right? He's just there uh, to, to, to put me to shame and, and illuminate everything about me that's wrong. That's why Jesus is there. And, and maybe you've known someone who's felt that way. In fact, maybe you've felt that way yourself at, at times. You may even feel that way right now. Um, we can run into it maybe in, with dialogue. Uh, in dialogue with a friend about Jesus, they, they might say something to us like, you know, when I hear about Jesus, I don't hear about someone who's for me. I hear about someone who's telling me I'm doing and have done everything wrong all the time. Right? Jesus is a condemner. All you Christians ever talk about is, is what I shouldn't have done and what I shouldn't still be doing, all this sin and guilt business all the time. Maybe you've had that conversation with a friend. Maybe you felt that way yourself. Jesus just makes me feel bad about stuff I don't want to feel bad about. Or quite frankly, he makes me feel bad about stuff I don't even think I should feel bad about. So one writer commenting along these lines, he puts it this way. He says, really, sin is nothing but a sneaky chocolate where you kind of know you shouldn't, but not in a serious way. So, so says our friend, I don't, I don't need to hear about your Jesus because I'm, I'm tired of hearing all about this sin and judgment business. That's just, that's just shaming me or whatever it is. Just leave me alone with that stuff. It's not that big of a deal. I don't like speaking about this one who just comes with this word of condemnation. To which John responds, actually, 
If, if you're thinking that way about Jesus, you're not thinking accurately about the main truth about Jesus. You're called to trust in him because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John's saying that the point of the message of Jesus is not your bad full stop. It's that in your lostness, in your badness, in the guilt that is there, Jesus has come to save you from that. And that's a message we need to hear and even have reframed at times for us. God didn't send Jesus into the world to squish everyone under the weighty burden of our dirty consciences. Right? The law does that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus didn't come to condemn us in our sin, but to rescue us from our sin. To, to look to Jesus isn't to be weighed down by disgrace and humiliation, but instead to look to Jesus is to be relieved from those low places. And we need to be able to speak in that way. It's all too easy to have our Christian witness marked by guilting people. Of course, there's a place for accurately speaking about our fallen need as humanity. Of course, there's a place for that. The gospel is good news only because of the truth of the bad news about our human condition. But it's possible to drive in that lane a little bit too long. In fact, in fact we can even live in that guilt-laden, condemned frame of mind as Christian believers. As Christians, we can live burdened by guilty consciences. You know, I know Jesus saved me. I know that. But, but, but I know I don't measure up. And my weaknesses and, and my imperfections, those struggles just which keep weighing on me. All of those things, it's the burden, the burden, the burden. And while no doubt we, we need to be very uh, and regularly clear on the reality of sin, which John is going to speak to more here in just a moment, the purpose of Jesus' coming is not to leave people in a state of guilt. Our, 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 our hearts are already guilty in their fallen condition. In fact, John makes that clear in verse 20. If you just look at that, John tells us that people stay in the darkness because they know they have deeds that they don't want exposed. We're guilty. People feel guilty. What people need to be told, what we as Christians even need to continually be reminded of, is that while guilt and shame are real and we're called to confess our sins, Jesus, Jesus hasn't come to, to jump up and down on our bruised hearts, hurting us further. Instead, He's come to remake us, to relieve us. That's why even in our service, we obviously have a confession of sin every week, but we never stop with just the confession of sin. We have a confession of sin and a pardon. At the exact same time, we don't even wait five minutes in between. We wait 20 seconds in between. Right? The gospel doesn't leave us condemned. Jesus came to set us free. So the Apostle Paul, he makes that point so plainly in Romans chapter 8, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as we're walking according to the Spirit-filled new life that He's granted to us. No condemnation. It's possible for us to need to recalibrate with this at times, just in terms of our witness or even in our own thinking from time to time. Jesus the reliever, not Jesus the condemner. We regularly need to be renewed in the truth that Jesus doesn't leave me in a state of guilt. Jesus doesn't come to condemn me. He knows my weakness. He calls me to turn from sin. He calls me to repentance, all of those things. But he doesn't call me to that repenting from sin and that conviction that comes along with that. He doesn't call me from that to leave me in this weighed down place with the burden of guilt. But he calls me back from those paths of sin in order to bring me to a place of relieved life. So we just reflect on this a little bit. You know, so, so, so you didn't measure up last week. I didn't measure up last week. Praise God, Jesus came to save you, not crush you. Conviction and condemnation are two very different things. 
Right? We can and we should be convicted over sin. But that conviction is not a, is not a cloud that follows us around like Eeyore. You know, in our life, as we're walking, as we're walking through our days, that conviction is a pointer. It's a compeller to the one who relieves us from that sin that we've been convicted of. It points us to Jesus and we're relieved again and again and again. We don't live with that dark cloud of gloom over us. We live in the light of Christ. If we're living in a state of burden condemnation. We need to remind ourselves to take a second look, a bigger look, a longer look at who Jesus is and the sufficiency of what he offers, where he gives us rest. And sometimes we live like, like Jesus is there just to hand out unsatisfactory performance evaluations. But to feel condemned in Christ is the opposite of why he bled and died and rose again, purchasing life for us. To live with a persistent sense of condemnation as a Christian believer is something we want to turn away from ourselves simply because Jesus calls us to a place of rest. He came to relieve. He came to make you clean. He came so that so, so that we can uh, live. And even in that way, the hymn says, you know, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do at that point? Oh, you're right. The guilt is there. I'm so I'm so guilty. The burden of that guilt is great. I'm I'm, I'm going to sit here pressed down by this long, 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 long list of things I've done that I ought not to have done and I haven't done that I should have done. You're right. I should be, I should be in a despairing condition because of who I've been. That would be a bad hymn. Right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful, guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Right? So we don't, we don't live with a persistent sense of condemnation with Jesus. And even now as I say that, you might be feeling condemned about feeling condemned. Right? And now I just feel so guilty about feeling so guilty all the time. You see, our human hearts can, can, can do these, these kinds of things. So really, we're driven back to verses 14 and 15, aren't we? We need to be looking to Jesus. We need to not be turned in on ourselves so much that that weight can weigh down on us. Instead, we need to look to Jesus as the sufficient one who is provided entirely and completely and continually and perfectly for us to find eternal relief from the sin and guilt that can weigh us down. These things have no final voice in my life anymore. They have no final measure in God's standard anymore because Christ himself has taken the full burden of them. So we don't live with guilt, not because we've been so good. No, we've all sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God. We don't have a clean conscience because of our goodness. My conscience isn't clean because I really nailed perfect holiness starting about midday Wednesday this week. No. We have a clean conscience because God the Father sent God the Son to come and pay the just penalty for our sin and relieve our guilt. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to cleanse. So that's the big thing John clarifies here, first of all, Jesus didn't come to condemn humanity. Jesus came to save the world and its badness, not debase and disparage and embarrass and, and degrade us. He came to relieve us, redeem us, right? which is even so evident as we work through the Gospels and we see Jesus dealing with those who are, by society's measure, the most down, the most dirty, the most removed. What is he constantly doing with those people? With the Pharisees, he's going to speak in harsh ways. Those who are proud and arrogant and have decided that they have the measure of all things good, he'll speak much differently with them than he will with the people who are recognizing their lowness. 
He didn't come to leave them in their lowness. He came to raise them to a place of gospel victory. So Jesus doesn't come to condemn. He comes to save. That's verse 17. And then as we keep moving into verse 18, John continues to bring clarity by telling us that, well, Jesus didn't come to condemn humanity. In his coming, uh, he does highlight a present division that exists. Really, we could say a, a forever division that exists within humanity. Okay, so there's a division present here in verse 18. I'll just read that again for us. Verse 18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Okay, so, so now John is determining to get a little bit personal again. Uh, earlier in verse six, 16 and 17, he's talked about the world. So we have that, that nice generic term for the lost condition of humanity. But he gets more personal here in verse 18 uh, where we could actually translate that the one who believes. Or the one who does not believe, he's going to get, he gets individual in his interest here. It's uh, personal. And he says, the one who believes in Jesus, so, so the one who puts their trust in Jesus, confessing their need for him, looking to him for salvation, the one who believes in Jesus is not condemned. Because that's not what Jesus came to do. But the one who does not believe, that's where this condemnation condition, situation exists. That they are only further condemned in a, or only further confirmed in a state of condemnation. By not trusting in Christ and his coming. Jesus didn't come to condemn. But, but who he is. Highlights a matter of division in humanity. And that manner of division in humanity. Is between a condemned state. And a not condemned state. Jesus' presence even highlights it. It exacerbates that reality in humanity. As people are either turning to him. Or not turning to him. So we understand part of what John is telling us here is that humanity as a whole is not neutral. Humanity's position on the other side of sin in the Garden of Eden is a condemned position, even from birth, which is what David says in Psalm 51, isn't it? In sin, my mother conceived me. In sin, my mother conceived me. The scriptures have many different terms uh, to speak of sin, all illustrating the fact that that is a separation for us from God because we've gone in a way that is contrary to his good prescribed way of life. We read through the scriptures and sin is called lawlessness. So it's disobeying what God said. Sin is called transgressing. So it's, it's crossing what should be left as a proper boundary. Sin jumps over that. Right? Sin is rebellion in scripture, which is helpfully uh, reframed by R.C. Sproul when he calls it cosmic treason. Sin is spoken of as perversion in the Bible, so it's this warped, twisted condition. The scriptures have all kinds of ways to speak about sin, none really more potent than the word idolatry. Sin ultimately is saying, I'm exchanging the true right and rule of God for something else. And humanity, since the Garden of Eden, is lost in that condemned condition. So much so that we can read things like we find in Genesis 6, it's repeated again in Genesis 8, where all the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. That doesn't mean that we can't ever have a happy thought. But it means that the underlying tainted truth about the totality of our personhood as humanity, apart from grace, is twisted. It's sinful. Jesus doesn't come into a world that's neutral toward him. Which he says plainly in John 15, the world hated me first. He doesn't, he doesn't come into a neutral order. Jesus comes into a condemned order. Humanity sits in our natural condition justly, 
condemned, under the penalty uh, of, of our treason against God. So, so in us, we love what puts us against the God who made us. That, that's our condition. And then, of course, we hear about Jesus. We hear the message of the gospel, and that goes one of two ways. Way one, we hear that message about Jesus and find relief from the condemnation that we deserve. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. We hear about Jesus and we know that, that to trust in Jesus is to find this one, as Paul will say to the Colossians, who took all our sins, nailing them to the cross. So we end up in this position, you know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, he washed me white as snow. So one response to Jesus is, is to see him not as a condemner, but as the rescuer of all who will believe in him. Either, either we're confronted with Christ and we trust in him and we rest in him, or it goes the other way. For all who will not believe in Jesus, their condemnation is only further demonstrated. They're proving a persistent posture of heart that is set against God and His Savior King. Jesus doesn't condemn humanity, but Jesus does divide humanity. Ultimately, there are two kinds of people in the world. And it's not Republican and Democrat. It's not blue collar and white collar. It's not whatever else we may say. This generation or that generation. This race or that race. It's not even rich or poor. Right? Truly there are only two kinds of people in the world. And that division of those two groups is demarcated by the person of Christ. Believing and free from judgment from God because of Jesus. Or not believing and persisting in a rebellious condemned condition. So Jesus didn't come to condemn, but, but the salvation he brings does divide and illuminate the condemned state of humanity further as we reject him or, or as we embrace him. So, so verse 18, believing in the name of the one and only Son of God, that's what makes the difference between life, salvation, hope, and judgment and perishing, believing in the name, believing in the, in the personhood and the totality of who Jesus is as the one who's come to save, that's what is the distinguishing marker. So, so that helps us with John's why provision here. Why do we look to Jesus in a world of so many options? We can wonder, I, you know, I, I don't really need him per se. I can find my hope in other names right? that's offered around us, this, this thing and that thing and that thing and that thing, right? In the, in the German legend of Faust, there's this naive character, and she comes to Faust, who's, who sold his soul to the devil at this point. And this character, Gretchen, she asks Dr. Faust if he believes in God. And he responds by referencing uh, feelings of happiness coming from, from thoughts of heaven or nice things or maybe a new courtship he talks about. Right? These are all things that make me happy. And then he says, let them fill your heart entirely. And when your rapture in this feeling is complete, call it then as you will. Call it bliss, heart, love, God. I do not have a name. For this, feeling is everything. And then he makes his comment. Names are but sound and smoke befogging heaven's blazes. What does he say? He's like, I'm not willing to name the things that make me happy. I just want them to be the things that make me happy. 
which very much speaks to the nature of the culture that's around us right now. The thing that I want to make me happy, the thing I want to engage in and indulge in and allow to be present in my life that I think is going to make me happy is the thing I'm going to allow to do that. And your job is to affirm the fact that that is the thing for me and you can have the thing for you. But we're not going to call this by any kind of singular name. It could be this, it could be that, it could be the other thing over here. But there's no singular uniting name that brings life to us. We all need to follow our own paths and find the things that work best for us. And as we're chasing those things down, our only job as humanity is to unite in affirming the distinction that exists between whatever you want to do is best for you and that's where joy is going to be found. If we do anything less, we're befogging heaven's blazes. To which, of course, John is speaking and he says actually the, the, the exact opposite of that is true. There is a specific dividing line between eternal well-being and perishing and his name is Jesus. Jesus didn't come to condemn, he came to save. But the only way to not be justly condemned in our natural condition is to look to him as, as he is the one. It is his name. It is, it is the perfection of his personhood and character and holiness and sacrifice that gives relief from the guilt and the shame and provides life forever for us. We look to Jesus. We name the name of Christ. Not because that does anything to disrupt the validity of all these other options, but because it is the only option that we have which leaves us in a place of ultimate eternal well-being and rest. So we look to Jesus because Jesus didn't come to condemn, though he does come and exacerbate the division that exists in humanity between those who will find life and those who will turn their back on the life God offers. Okay, so then, John, we're kind of left with another why. Why, why is that? If, if this Jesus is so life-giving... If, if this is the Jesus who brings relief and life and hope and forgiveness, if he's the one who doesn't come to condemn but to save, why, this why does this division continue to exist? Why, why are people not trusting in Jesus? And so then in verses 19 to 21, John explains the division. So in verse 19, if you look at that, we read, this is the judgment. Now, that, that can be a little bit confusing, just the way the word judgment is used throughout here. It might actually be more helpful to translate that as, as this, is the, this is the verdict, right? Or this is the just evaluation. In other words, this is a, a, a just and righteous uh, evaluation of what's going on in this, in this situation of two different groups, right? So this is the verdict. This is what John says. Let's get to the point of this. He says, he says, um, First of all, we need to talk about the condemned. So he's going to talk about both the condemned and those who are trusting in Jesus here. We need to talk about the condemned in verses 19 and 20. And he says that condemnation exists uh, in this form. Here's why it exists in the world. People love the darkness rather than the light. It's actually the same love word that was used for God so loved the world. Right? People love the darkness rather than the light. So there is a, a significant affection problem for those who will not come to Christ, right? Light has come into the world. Obviously, that light is Christ, right? Light has come in. The hope of God has come in. Salvation has come. But, uh, but, but we will remain condemned. Some will remain condemned because they love the darkness, not the light. So, so those who are condemned, John is telling us, cherish. They, they take great pleasure and have deep and abiding devotional fondness for what is contrary to God and light. They love darkness. There's an affection problem. And that affection problem is actually attached to an avoidance problem. 
in verse 20. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. It's really quite the statement to make there. So John's telling us, as one commentator put it, that ironically, evil is aware of its own shame and it knows exactly what to do to stay dark. And we see that around us, don't we? This desire to stay away from the light. So, so we have this division between salvation from Jesus that comes from Jesus and, and, and continued condemnation. And those who continue in a state of condemnation have these two things going on. It's an affection problem. They love the darkness. And it's an avoidance problem. They feel the guilt of their sin. And they do not want the truth of their folly to be exposed. And again, that's, that's, that's everywhere around us. We see that in the vitriol that can be present, even around the notion of speaking about sin. As, as a culture, we are so passionately committed to saying that whatever you want to do is good with me, as long as you say everything I want to do is good with you. That is the new measure of morality. The only thing wrong is saying that what someone does is wrong because I want to make sure no one messes up the wrong I'm so passionately consider, continuing to pursue. I want to leave that covered up. Let's call it good. It's, it's a my precious, it's a, a golem in the ring thing. For those who remain in condemnation, it's because they want their darkness. It's an affection problem. It's an avoidance problem. I love my dark. Leave me in the dark where I will not be exposed in my guilt. That's the posture of the condemned. Okay. So how about the posture of those who are not condemned? Well, verse 20. Um, we can actually translate that a little bit more literally here because there's a, there's a colloquial expression, actually a Hebrew expression that John uses. Verse 20 Anyone who does truth, so that's just a way of speaking about living according to God's righteousness. Right Anyone who does truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Now, now what we must notice here is that the person who is saved, who's come to the light, is not guiltless. They must come out of the dark into the light. Right? There's a humbling element here as we think about this doing truth business. But the amazing thing about this doing truth business is that person has moved from being in a condition of darkness covering their guilt, seeking to hide it, to a place of exposure. And why have they been moved to why are they moved to this place of exposure? Is it because they're able to say, You wouldn't believe how smart I finally became? You wouldn't, I mean, I was wandering over here and then all of a sudden I was just sitting under the right tree at the right moment. I became enlightened and, and all of the, the foolishness of the sinful world just became so evident to me. And now I've risen above all of that and I know all about this doing truth business and I'm going to live over here in the light. And oh, they, they're, it's just, I'm just so embarrassed for them that they don't catch on to this yet. That's not what's going on in this person who's, who's doing truth, living in the light. What's going on is they do truth, live in the light. They are exposing God's works. Why are they living in the light and not living in the darkness? Well, you see what John is doing? He's taking us all the way back to where things started. They've been born again. God has so affected their heart that they are no longer turned away from darkness, but actually seek to do truth walking in the light because as they do truth walking in the light, the power of God's grace and new life that He's given to them is exposed to the world around them. They're, they're living it out. 
So God's works are being put on display, not their, not, not, not their capacity to suddenly comprehend all that they must comprehend. Nicodemus is trying to sort it all out. No, no, no. None of that is going on. What's going on is God's grace is being put in working on working display in their life as they're doing truth, displaying the fact that there's darkness to be avoided, there's life to be found as God comes and works in our hearts. So it's really an amazing thing that John's putting together for us here as he as he brings the whole thing, as he brings the whole thing full circle. He's telling us Jesus is the differentiating name that stands between condemnation and salvation. This is why I look to him frail as I may be, frail as I most certainly am. I rest in the fact that as I look to him, he's the one who's going to renew me. And what I'm depending on is not the fact that I can get it all sorted in my mind and make sure I'm performing properly beforehand. No, no, no. What I'm going to depend on is that it is actually God's active grace in my life, Him working, making me new, causing me to walk in this path of truth now. And as I'm resting in that, I'm finding the renewal in life that comes by looking to Jesus. And so, and so in a sense, John's giving us a, a little bit of, a, a little bit of an, an evaluative uh, diagnostic tool to use here in our own hearts when we're wondering where we're at in relationship to the person of Christ. We, we simply can ask, where, where are my affections in this whole thing? What am I really, do I, do I love darkness and want to stay with my darkness so that my guilt won't be exposed? You see, oftentimes Christians can feel that they're living in a state of condemnation because darkness can still be present in our life. We can say amen to the fact that we still sin, we still find ourselves stumbling. Those things can be there. So I can feel that I'm living in a state of condemnation because of the reality that sin does remain in corners of my life as I battle against it. I can be in that state of condemnation. But what, what is being made plain here is that that state of condemnation is not there for those whose affections are different. What brings me relief in that state of condemnation is to be able to say, I I don't love these things. I don't want to seek to cover them up. I don't want them to stay in the dark and hide them and let them just live there happily, my precious. What marks out the difference between the condemned and the not condemned is that I want to come to the light. My affection for Christ is my highest affection. He's the one I'm looking to. And I hate these things that are over here. So we can run this little diagnostic. Am I feeling condemned? You see, we can't say, am I sinning? Because that's just yes. We, We stumble in many ways. We confess, we repent, we grow. But we, we sin. So we can't say, am I sinning? We can say, where, where do our affections reside? And my affection does not reside in hiding in the darkness. My affection resides with loving Christ, loving the light. And why is that? Well, because God in His grace gives us new heart, hearts to trust in Him. So we keep being left in verses 14 and 15 with all of these truths. So what, where does that leave us then? Well, look to Jesus. Look to the one who was raised up. And in Him, we find the life that ultimately that ultimately we need. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So what do we do? Well, we run to Him. We trust in Him. We rest in Him. We're trusting in Jesus. And as we do, we put off the deeds of darkness and we walk according to the light. And so we're thankful to God for His Word, which reminds us of these things. In Christ, we are not condemned. In Christ, we are rescued. And we continue to walk in the way that He's called us to live. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and we ask that it would be useful in our hearts. uh, Lord, when condemnation can settle in, remind us of your truth that relieves that condemnation. 
uh, where conviction settles in, may we be quick to respond to it and turn back to Christ and find forgiveness in the renewed life that we need. Uh, but where condemnation settles in, Lord, may it be gone quickly as we look to the cross and the significance of the gospel and what it means that Jesus has taken all our condemnation for us and we now have a completely clean conscience before you. We praise you for this truth and we ask that we would be able to live with affections that flow out of the truth of what you've provided for us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.